Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Zara Annis Hanslin. Dr. Annis Hanslin is Assistant Professor of History and Art History at the University of Delaware, where she specializes in early American and Atlantic world history. Her first book, Portrait of a Woman in Silk, Hidden Histories of the British Atlantic World, explores 18th century cultural history by examining the worlds of four people represented by a portrait of a woman in a silk dress. And now, Drs. Annis Hanslin and Bradburn. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Doug Bradburn, the director of Washington Library here at beautiful Mount Vernon, and I'm joined today to have a great conversation with Zara Annis Hanslin, uh, who is a professor at the University of Delaware, and uh, welcome to Mount Vernon. Thank you. It is beautiful here today, and I'm very delighted to be here. Uh, Zara has put out a book that's getting a lot of uh, praise and uh, I think is being widely read in the early American history field, and I hope uh, further afield, uh, because it's fantastic, the little I've read of it so far. Uh, it's Portrait of a Woman in Silk, Hidden Histories of the British Atlantic World. Congratulations. Thank you. So this was uh, your dissertation project that's evolved into this incredible first book? It was, and thank you for the compliment. Um, mm. I hope that anyone who thinks about reading it will, will read the book rather than the dissertation, which is dreadful and should be locked in a vault somewhere. Please, stop. This <laughs> dissertation won a prize, uh, the Mike Zuckerman Prize at uh, the University of Pennsylvania for Best Dissertation in American Studies. Yes. Um, so you've been a famous person in the field of early American history for many, many years now. It's it's all a relative term, I suppose. But <laughs> yes, I was I was very gratified to, to get that prize because uh, my my two years at the University of Pennsylvania's McNeil Center were absolutely formative. So it was really nice to be permanently ensconced on a plaque in the McNeil Center because well, of that prize. Well, let's talk a little bit about that first, then. So um, so you were getting your PhD at the University of Delaware. I was. Uh, and uh, and you became a McNeil Center fellow. Uh, talk about the McNeil Center. What's that like? What is it about? The McNeil Center is, I think, one of the really energizing, galvanizing institutions in early American studies, writ large, mostly for historians, but also art historians and literary studies people. And uh, I think Dan Richter, under his tutelage in particular, has made that center into one of the, without question, uh, best meetings of the early American minds in mm. the country. Mm. Well, that, uh, that's really well put, and I think the, the great thing about the McNeil Center is the diversity of projects that come through there. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and as you say, the sort of interdisciplinarity of it with, uh, with material culture and critical studies and uh, other directions to come at that challenge of what is early America. Yeah, most definitely, and it sort of plays off of, um, by default, what Karen Wolf has, has tagged, hashtag vast early America. Oh, good, right? yes. So, um, so I think that that's one of the reasons it's been so vibrant, and mm. it's just a lively community. And it's one of the reasons I'm really glad to be back at the University of Delaware as a faculty member, because mm. I get to sneak in and pretend I'm back at the McNeil Center with that's regularity. Are you one of the Salonistas now, or uh, have you done that yet since you've yes, been back? Yes, I have, I have as much as I can, yeah. yes. Well, busy, busy life, for sure. Uh, but uh, 
So you were a two-year fellow there. Uh, what does one do on a two-year fellowship? I was there for two years. The first year I was a dissertation fellow working on my dissertation. And the second year I was there as a research associate because Dan Richter let me stay there out of the kindness of his heart. Mm. Uh, so did they I, have the building when you were there? Or they were they did. still Okay. Yeah, they did have the building. They'd moved away from the old Animal Head yeah. Lodge and uh, <laughs> moved into the new the new McNeil Center, yeah. which is a wonderful place to work, but um, but will forever be a negative because I don't think I'll ever have a nice as nice an office ever again. And so yeah. I, I peaked as a grad student in terms of office well, space. That's rubbish because you are going to be a fellow here at Mount Vernon, and ah, you will have point. a very nice <laughs> office not only in your house but also here in the, in this beautiful good building. Good point. So uh, the, you just live to believe. There's always a future. So. Excellent. Um, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about this extraordinary work. Um, your PhD is in the history of American civilization, uh, and you do a lot of material culture. Are you an historian, or are you an art historian, or are you an American studies person, or do you care? It's a great question. I am staunchly interdisciplinary by nature and mm. design, but I do think of myself as a historian. Mm. So I think of myself as a historian who uses material culture to resuscitate the past. Yeah. So rather than um, people like yourself who use more traditional archival sources primarily, in addition to using those, I um, try to unpack the, the past through images and things in particular. Yeah. Well, I'm envious of your uh, uh, fluid uh, comprehension and really literacy of uh, material culture because uh, one of the things, certainly since I've been to Mount Vernon, uh, you know, I, I understand better sort of the, the importance of being able to, to use material culture. But why is it that traditional historians are, are so bad with uh, material culture? I mean, we use images all the time. Mm. We, we use maps fairly well if we know much about them. But, um, you know, objects and, uh, you know, archaeology and also, you know, the, the things that are at Winterthur and, the, and at the Met and, the, you know, in these museums, uh, we're, we're, we're not great uh, at it. So what? why? What's going on? Well, I, don't, I don't think it's a matter of not being good. I think it's a mm. matter of not having been exposed to how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, if you've never been taught French, you're not going to speak French well. But no. if you're taught French, then presumably no. you can speak it well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think of material culture as being like that. If, yeah. you, if you're studying for your PhD or your master's at a place that does it, yeah. then you'll likely become proficient. It's learnable just like yeah. any other source material. But if you haven't been exposed to it, then there's no reason you would gravitate towards it yeah. necessarily. But it's a shame, though, because I do think, um, you know, we are expected. Well, it's just like, you know, being adept at statistic and statistical analysis. We need to be able Which to I be. Which I am not. Well, we, and, 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 and as that literature, remember, in the great, you know, social history era, the kilometricians were dominating. Mm -hmm. And you had to have a certain literacy. You had to understand what was good use of statistics, what was a good quantitative analysis, what was a good, you know, source base and regression analysis. So you could criticize it. I mean, if you right. don't know anything about it, you, it's very hard to criticize. and Well, not criticize in a good way, in the real meaning of the term, which is sort of help understand and build upon it. Right, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I, I wouldn't ever fault a historian for not using material culture if it weren't germane to what they're trying to do. And yeah, right. Although there's been a really encouraging, especially in early American history, embrace of material culture mm. as a valid evidentiary source. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I would never want to see historians feeling like they had to discuss the fact a map existed just because it existed. Right, right. Use the map because it tells you something that the letter doesn't yeah. tell you. Don't yeah. just use the map because you're trying to 
you know, embrace this this new field, um, newish field. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think that that's something to keep in mind. What what I what I love about the work is that you know you're you're doing you're doing what historians do, which is answer questions, uh, and your source base allows you to you know answer certain questions that without it you wouldn't be able to answer. So. Right. Uh, and you treat um, material objects as like an archive as well. So as you point out in your note on method that um, you're making assumptions, well, you're making an argument, an analytical argument about, you know, a certain uh, way an artist worked or a certain uh, type of fabric uh, because you've looked at hundreds of samples, even though yes. you're only kind of citing the one as, you know, uh, but you have this familiarity with the, you know that you that you're using as your evidence to make your case, right? And I, I and I, I like that a lot, quite a bit actually. Yeah, thanks. Well, and it's just like as you know, you know, you read 55 letters and you extract a couple of sentences, right? right. Yeah. Um, but you need to read all of those in order to make connections and make a larger um, a larger conclusion about mm -hmm. the body of materials. Yeah. And as you point out, it's exactly the same thing with with images and objects. Well, at any rate, you don't want everybody doing what you do because you want to be the go-to <laughs> star who can do this. And you know, you are in an art history department as well as a history department. Yes. How does that work? Is that a, is that a good? I mean, are you? I mean, are you fully in both? Are you voting rights in both departments? Are no, you I am or like affiliated faculty who teach in both? It's always different. In different yeah, schools. no, and it's interesting. And I guess I'll be speaking of statistics. I am 75% mm. in the history department and 25% in the art history department, mm. which for practical purposes means that my administrative voting home is the history department, mm. and I teach one of my four courses a year in the yeah. art history department. Well, that's great. But I'm and sure they're very popular. Just well, Who doesn't love art history? Who doesn't love art history? And everyone should, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the art <laughs> history department at Delaware is, uh, is really known... Um, Actually, even worldwide, I would I would venture to say mm. for its strengths in early American art, and so that was something that appealed to me was being allied with that department well, as well as the. So, do they department. have a formal connection with Winterthur, or is that not informal and just an informal thing? Or it's it's formal in the sense that um, faculty members of the history and art history department, like myself, sit on the executive committee of the Winterthur program, and okay. actually this weekend we are deciding the fates of sixteen intelligent. Go getting prospective MA students at Winterthur to see future Mount Vernon employees. Yes, future Mount Vernon like employees, exactly. <laughs> future, future helpers of, of Susan Scholl. And, um, and yeah. so there is that, that formal tie in terms of the institutional structure. Yeah. Uh, but the connections that we make with individual Winterthur students is, is largely a matter of how closely their projects mm. align with right. our interests. Yeah. Well, that's a, that, well it, I bring up Winterthur because I'm looking at this painting on your book. This beautiful painting of a woman in silk. Yes. And let's start talking about that. All right. So um, what what is this book about? So this book is, I like to say that it, it came into being because um, I crossed the Atlantic, like many of the things here, and I visited a museum. Mm. And all historians should visit museums, whether they're going to use material culture or not, because Absolutely. you do see... Uh, you do see sources uh, that are different from those you see in the archives, and sometimes it can jog your memory and mm. um, just force you to make different connections than you otherwise might have made about people in the past mm -hmm. um, and the history that you want to tell. And in this case, I was looking at these textiles that used to be in the Victorian Albert Museum in London in a marvelous condition for researchers because they were encased in glass, 
uh, some cases glued to the glass and mm. any conservator listening to this is horrified right now <laughs> and you could just go into this textile study room flip through them and have your will with them now they are off-site safely stored and no longer as accessible but at the time I kept looking at them and thinking these really remind me of something I've seen before mm. mm -hmm. and it struck me that it was this painting that hangs wow. at the Winterture Museum um, in the uh, museum part of the house where I think that it was placed by Henry Francis DuPont because it essentially matches the high-end Chippendale-style furniture beneath it. Mm -hmm. And we had noticed this as graduate students because, let's admit, she's rather well-endowed and catches your eye um, <laughs> on a certain level. She fills the room. <laughs> she fills the room. Yeah. But I also kept thinking that the fabric looked like fabric I'd seen before. And in fact, what I found after a little bit of digging in the library that afternoon is that it was, in fact, um, fabric that had been designed by one of early modern Britain's few women's silk designers, Anna Maria Garthwaite, in the mm. 18th century, um, had been woven by a French Huguenot weaver named Simon Julens, which I know because Anna Maria Garthwaite, bless her heart, had written down the date and the name of the person who commissioned every single drawing. Mm. And she has over 800 that survive. Wow. Um, and within three years of the moment that she designed the cloth for uh, this Huguenot weaver, it made its way across the Atlantic, mm -hmm. where Anne Shippen Willing, the wife of Philadelphian merchant and mayor Charles Willing, wore it when she sat for her portrait by Robert Feek, who's mm. a mysterious uh, New Englander. Uh, we don't even know whether he died in Bermuda or Barbados, but often called America's first native-born painter right. of any note, of yeah. European descent. Wait a second now. So you, you started this story, so this is how you... You didn't know all this, obviously, when you no. looked at this. You. Yeah, this is the story you've pieced together. Yeah, this this, this book, is the this is, is the, the historical detective work that came yeah. up, and of course, as you know, the thing that's extraordinary about this is yeah. most colonial paintings. This one dates from 1746. Very early. It's very early, and you know, it's before the sort of John Singleton Copley, mm -hmm. Benjamin West kind of people yeah. that we the all ones know. Everybody love. knows about now in um, particular, but yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but it, at, it's unusual because it's early. It's also unusual because usually paintings this early you don't know who the sitter is, much less the painter. Right, yeah. And you certainly don't know where the clothing they came from, which the vast majority of the time is not their actual clothing anyway. Right, yeah, they just paint the head and put some random random outfit on them. Or exactly. it's, it's just it's, they keep them in plain because they, it's too hard to do all these wonderful yes, designs. Yes, it's, it's difficult, and it also dates, um, dates the painting because fabric mm. rather than the cut of clothes was what made you look out of date or not really? at the time. Uh, well, we have a painting here done by somebody uh, that nobody knows who, I don't think, and we don't know, we know who it is. Of course, it's Lawrence Washington, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, you know, but who knows who did that and, you know, if he's wearing a real piece of clothes he had or not. So, yeah, that's more typical where you, you just don't know much. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. as, as a good historian, um, you know, there's no way you can pass by all this, this mm. verifiability, right? Yeah. You have to do something with this. And what I liked about this was thinking about the fact that this was a network of identifiable people yeah. linked across space and time through making and right. buying and using this object. Um, yeah. And the fact that it was two women, two men, two colonials, and two um, Londoners, I thought was really evocative of this, the fact that what this painting reveals, one of the things is that um, the Atlantic world was, was a community in which there's a, an imagined community shaped by objects mm -hmm. and by the labor to make objects and the, um, the experience of, of buying and using them, as well as by the imagined communities that we tend to recognize mm -hmm. revolving around things like political ideologies yeah. and the Republic of Letters. Right. So you, you're situating this story about uh, this incredible portrait as sort of as a way to look at its, its story. The story of this portrait is a way to understand 
what was the meaning of the Atlantic world? Absolutely. Um, questions about production and consumption and how they're interrelated. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the work on, you know, the consumption revolution literature in the British case and also in the American historiography, early American historiography, your book stands out as really unique. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, the latest version that comes to my mind, you know, you think of like Oceans of Wine, right? yes. you know, David Hancock's great book in which what he adds into that, into the old kind of here's production, here's consumption, mm-hmm. and he adds the sort of distribution networks in there. You seem to have taken it to another level, the fourth dimension. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I don't know what it is yet, but it's, I mean, it's, this is extraordinary. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a big admirer of David Hancock's book, and actually I had the slightly terrifying but ultimately really gratifying and helpful experience of him being one of my well, outside readers. And here's David. i got to read David's blurb on the back because with knowing if anyone out there knows David, you will know that this is interesting. He writes, extremely intriguing. No one has written such a book nor made such an argument. Yeah, <laughs> no. it's a great David Hancock. That's another book. way of saying yes. this is an interesting book. You know? <laughs> yes. I think he loves it, but no, yeah. he he had good things to say about it, and he uh, he maybe yeah. this is more processed than than your listeners want to know about. But but he gave me no less than a fifteen page mm. reader's report mm. with lots of helpful suggestions. Yeah. Well, so well, you talk. So you mentioned very disparagingly your dissertation, and, and uh, I hopefully think much more highly of this book in my hands. But so maybe that's part of this kind of um, process for you, sort of like, well, how did you, what, what did you do uh, to make this into the book that you're proud of? In, in essence, what is, you know, if, if it is this uh, intriguing book that no one has ever written such a book or made such an argument, I mean, wh- what what did you do to it to turn it into what you what you like? What do you really like about this book? There are a couple things I really like about it. Um, you know, it's it's and so far I haven't found any big mistakes, so that's that's encouraging. Um, mm. I had really great after this podcast. Watch after out. this podcast, you know, I know we'll see people. we'll see what happens. And I, I have to say that one of one of the things I'm proud of about this book is that even though these four people are are verifiable and identifiable, mm. they leave very very little of an archival trail. Yeah. And so if you try to resuscitate them through traditional archival sources alone, they really fall off the face of of the historical earth, even though each of the four was was undeniably literate, if not educated, as well as financially mm. solvent. So they're the types of people who should have left documentation behind and didn't. And so one of the things I'm proud of is that um, I think this book could serve as a methodological guide for how mm. how historians can use material culture to really bring otherwise hidden people um, yeah. out of the shadows of the past. So that that's one thing. Um, and another thing is that I think that it's a uh, because of that lack of, of documentation, um, one of the things that changed between my dissertation and the f- this finished book mm. manuscript version is that I relentlessly historical detectived yeah. every teeny tiny bit of information, no matter how seemingly mm-hmm. um, in the realm of minutia, in order to tell as many yeah. histories as I could. And in fact, one of the ironic things is that you know, it ends up being a history of the long 18th century because conveniently yeah. their collective birth and death dates go from 1686 to 1791. So, yeah. you know, you couldn't make up a better chronology yeah, for the right. long 18th century. Yeah. Um, and I actually had to, at a certain point, stop researching because I was coming up with so many connected histories of thousands of people mm. and different ideas. And, yeah. you know, so it's. I think it's a really... Um, I, I, methodologically speaking, I'm proud of it for that reason. Yeah. I think it is a good example no, of well how you can find hidden histories. Really, is you know, as you say, a great way to tell many different histories. And um, 
and think about. So let's tell some of those. Let's think about some of those. You start out, of course, with this very evocative story of the history of a, a poor silkworm. Poor silkworm. Uh, who <laughs> never turns into a, a butterfly or whatever they no, turn into. Turns, turns what into What do they come out of their cocoons <laughs> looking like? Does anyone know? They just get all killed in their cocoons. Yeah, actually, actually, I'll show. I'm showing a picture tonight of, of a really anthropomorphized uh, silkworm. So, <laughs> a realized yes, silkworm. a realized silkworm with, yeah. with wings and sort of a quizzical yeah. expression. But that immediately places this book in this kind of global story. I mean, so yes. let's talk. You know, so where, why silk? Where does the silk trade? Why is it important? And how come it's in London? How does that work? Well, a couple of things about starting with the silkworm. Uh, yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to do that was to was to make the point that even though a lot of historians would term what I'm doing a microhistory because it revolves on a single object and a network of mm -hmm. initial network of four people, yeah. that I, what I'm trying to do with this, as a lot of microhistories do really well, is use a microhistory to tell macro histories. Go big or go home. Exactly. So in this case, um, the silk trade is of course storied connections to Silk Road. Mm -hmm. um, you know mythologized origins uh, in China where an empress sat under a mulberry tree and you know a, a cocoon dropped into her cup of hot tea and unraveled and she thought oh, this is a thread you know mm. so these types of sort of global legendary for thousands of years um, yeah. exotic stories related to silk um, that was one aspect of it certainly mm. um, because I wanted to show how people were connected um, to one another not just throughout the Atlantic but the world through the goods that they make and use but the other reason I wanted to start with the silkworm and you know move straight from its sort of habit of constant defecation and the vile work of silk production <laughs> that that often entails to yeah. its life being snuffed out in a rather horrible fashion by being boiled alive, right? Was to was to really one of the things yeah. I'm doing with this book is questioning the um, the really convincing but I think incomplete story of explaining the so-called some consumer revolution okay. through emulative refinement. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. to my mind, what could be a better way to show that these beautiful things have these dark, troubled histories embedded within them that we yeah. need to pay attention to than to start with a silkworm and, you know, move from defecation to death? Well, you did make me sympathetic, admittedly, for the silkworm's lost potential. But yes. I, I did, uh, on the other hand, you know, it is a worm. And so, uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, but and, and this is such a beautiful dress, you know, so uh, it is. And, you know, as as I said, I think I think one of the I said in the book, I think one of the things that um, appealed to people in the 18th century and possibly even to, to us still today is that, you know, this it's literally the silkworm's cocoon is literally the silkworm's mm. spit. Yeah. Right. And it becomes this thing of shimmering beauty. And I think the transformative power of, you know, turning this this worm and its spit into this lustrous, luxurious fabric is part of its appeal throughout centuries. Which brings us to Spittlefields. Yes, which brings us to Spittlefields. Yes. Um, so which talk is about the, so Spittlefields is in the East End of London, and it's associated with the French Huguenot community for a long time. But how does it, uh, how does it become the center of this sort of textile creation? Yeah, so Spittlefields in the East End of London, which is now a very swank, um, very quickly gentrifying uh, I think there's a Chanel store now in the Spitalfields market when I was there in January. Mm. That's, that's, that's kind of symbolic. Um, <laughs> but before there was a Chanel store in the Spitalfields market um, and wealthy bankers lived in these, these townhouses, mm. um, it had a very long history of being a place where immigrants could go and find, uh, find a place to live and a place to apply their various yeah. trades because it was technically outside of the city wall. And um, so the French Huguenot, for example, right, um, right. coming over to flee religious persecution in France, brought their uh, textile weaving and design capabilities with them. Mm. 
and um, really resuscitated uh, the English silk trade in, in important ways. And by the 18th century, when Anna Maria Garthwaite is designing, even though it's not a majority French Huguenot industry, or nor is the neighborhood, it has that storied appeal, right. which is it's important. And it's still the center of this industry. Yes, exactly. And her role as a designer, so she's designing fabric. Right. So as I mentioned, the design of the fabric is really what's driving the novelty of fashion right. okay. in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And that is because you know what a woman's dress looks like from the 1720s to the 60s doesn't change that drastically. All right. I'm gonna, let's do some definitions. What is damask? Damask. Damask is the fabric that the woman in the portrait wears um, on the cover of my book. And so it it's, is it's not just silk fabric. It's a silk damask. It is a particular type of uh, fabric. Can you have any other kind of damask? Can it be made of cotton damask? Can yes, great question. There, there yeah. were um, silk and wool damask blends, which were very popular for when it was colder in particular. Okay. And so the damask is actually named for two things. One is the city of Damascus. Huh. Uh, which ch is a nod to the global connections, the right? Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then the other is um, is that it defines the um, the pattern and the method of weaving. So it's um, it's a sort of uh, the way the technique of, of weaving is, and it often so it's the technique of weaving rather than the material that it's exactly the component material, right? Okay. And the patterns because but, the patterns. But in the eighteenth century, we tend to think of this as silk or wool and silk. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Chinoiserie, <laughs> chinoiserie. The, I mean, I mean, I know it's an, an imitation of a Chinese kind of style, or, you know, but tell me what that is. So chinoiserie is another example of how global this story really. And that's is. where the word chintz comes from, right? Our chintz from here is from is chintz chinoiserie. Is chintz is actually um, takes us in a totally different direction because oh, chinoiserie is related to China, right? And yeah. chintz is related to India, chintz and calico. Oh, okay. Um, well, this so is quite the education. Right? Yes. All right. So there's, you know, textiles will take take your brain around the world yeah. if you. Well, this is so, so. This is something that George Washington knew very well. I mean, he's when he's ordering stuff, he's got all the differences laid out. Absolutely. He knows exactly what he wants, and and um, you know, it, whereas me, I don't. Um, no, and George Washington is a great example of how global colonial mm. American textile trade was, because yeah. as you might know. Baby George Washington was christened in a uh, with a with a white piece of white silk Chinese damask. Wow! So you know we've been buying stuff made in China for a long time. Uh, well, yeah, and then trying to figure out how to make it here. Exactly. Uh, and or in London in Spitalfields where they were obsessed with trying to make it. I'm sure. Uh, so um, Mechlin lace. Mechlin lace is uh, takes us to Europe to the Flemish or the Dutch um, ah, and yes. their tradition of lace making. Mm -hmm. So uh, so a, di a different part of the world, again, entirely. I like the, uh, the Pride and Prejudice when Mr. Bennett says, no lace, no lace, madam. <laughs> he doesn't want to hear about the lace. That's what I was thinking when I was reading about the lace. Yeah, so. no, it's, it's probably not the most invigorating topic <laughs> of conversation, but it was very complicated to make and took yeah. a lot of skill and was very expensive, could be very expensive. So this, let's paint a portrait of this portrait then. So the, here, here is who? And ship and willing. And ship and willing. Okay, and she is in a damask dress. Damask with Mechlin dress. Mechlin lace. Mechlin lace that she would have had added in America, North America. Yes. So the pattern on the fabric would have been done by Anna Maria Garthwaite. Anna Maria in Garthwaite in London. Woven in London. Woven as well. by a master weaver mm -hmm. of some kind who bought her design. Yes, exactly. Right, and so then, and then he would have woven the cloth, and then would have sold it to. Who just sold it to someone like her merchant husband, who okay. uh, who was a man who, who actually advertised for sale he's, precisely he, the goods that she's wearing. Okay, right. So so her husband traded in 
uh, in textiles, which, yeah, was, so which was one of the big trades in right. North America. So one of the things of I finished actually, goods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So and he also was, and this is not incidental to this story, um, one of the most uh, constantly active slave traders in Philadelphia. Mm. Um, but you know, so in in his in his shop, you could find for sale enslaved African bodies as well as mm. you know the types of textiles that his wife is wearing. Mm. But I think it's interesting because, in a way, what she's wearing in her portrait is a visual advertising. T it's like mar a marketing tool for his dry goods business. And do you think that's how he used the portrait? I suspect that, that was part of it because mm. it's very unusual to have uh, to have anyone wearing a flowered silk like this, especially in the colonies where you hardly ever see it. And what? so it w it's exactly the type of textile that he advertised for sale, and she would have had access to any textile she wanted, pretty much, mm. from London through him. And right. I think this is a good example of the types of things he was selling. Hmm. Um, she's wearing one of those hats that all the women in the 18th century who were <laughs> fashionable were wearing. It's yes. a very elegant thing. It, it is, is elegant. It? It's, it's also rather demure. And mm. this is an interesting fact about this I don't painting. see her as demure, but... Yeah. No. <laughs> well, by, by, the by the time this portrait was painted, she'd, she was either pregnant with or about to become pregnant with the seventh of her 11th 11 children, 10 yeah. of whom live to adulthood, which is rather astounding. Yeah, so there must be all sorts of descendants that... There are many descendants. Are well, many yes. enough to make this a bestseller? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I should, <laughs> you should be I should get on the horn the with the Shippens and the Willings and yeah, see, see, who wants to, see who wants to buy. <laughs> um, but no, she, uh, she is the granddaughter of Edward Shippen, the first Quaker mayor under right. the 1701 Charter of Philadelphia mm -hmm. and a pretty good pal of William Penn's. And uh, she herself, by the time this portrait was made, certainly was no longer a Quaker. She was baptized in an Anglican church along with one of her infant sons. Okay. So she's part of this this very familiar um, sort of declension narrative of Quakers right. um, abandoning the Quaker religion in the 18th century in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, but the family story goes that she um, she never lost somewhat of her attachment to um, Quaker ideals in important ways and. Other women at the time um, who had uh, portraits done later would have an artist come in and touch out the cur the, um, the cap because it was no longer fashionable. Um, this yeah. happened to a few Copley paintings, for example, and she never had this done. She kept it. Yeah. So it's an interesting, perhaps, nod to her Quaker roots. So Martha never got rid of the cap. That's true. Martha, Martha kept the cap, and that's probably how most people see her now rather than as the young, spry, elegant yeah. widow. Well, the, well, the cap was the happening thing, you know. Um, uh, so, uh, all right, okay, so let's get back to uh, Spitalfield. So um, the uh, the silk would have been woven by the master weaver. Is he one of your main players in here? He is. His name yes. is Simon Julens, yes. and um, he's largely knowable because he was a member of the Weaver's Company, the London Guild that controlled um, the industry as, yeah. as well as it could. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was actually, a, he was a liveryman, which means he was an elected officer, and so his, his name is trackable. Um, he must have been pretty good too, because he's sometimes given um, a really astounding amount of money to train apprentices. Um, and interestingly enough, resuscitating his life led me to another big takeaway that I hope people get from the book, which is that women's labor, as much as men, shaped the Atlantic world mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the production uh, as well as consumption of, of things that defined it in many ways. Um, because he, for example, was apprentice to a woman weaver rather oh, really? than to a male. Mm -hmm. um, and she was probably married to another weaver and then widowed because she shows up as uh, only at a certain point. Right. But she clearly was the one who also was good enough to train him because after training him, she went on to train a few other master weavers. Mm. So there are, there are these women sort of um, 
hidden you know it's like the yeah, whole kind of unseen unknowable exactly but they're much more present when you start digging it's kind of astounding how how yeah. relatively common they are in this industry mm-hmm. much more so than than past treatment has has okay. given credit right yeah because weavers we always think of sort of as a male dominated right you think of the uh, hogarth print yeah. right the the mm-hmm. idle and industrious apprentice right but it's possible that those apprentices were being trained by a woman weaver not a man hmm. that's that's fascinating so um well, well, and then this this designer you also feel is Anna Maria Garthway. Yes, um, she is uh, unusual because you think the designers weren't women as well. Yeah, we know that she was not the only woman designer. Uh, okay. There's another woman mentioned at the same time she was working called Phoebe Wright, who mm. was connected to the to the royal household, um, and whose embroidery school um, uh, embroidered designs that were over King George III's canopy, actually. So. Mm. Pretty, pretty high-end stuff yeah. um, in his throne room. But she's mentioned, but her designs don't survive. Wow, so she so, designed the canopy of King George III's throne room. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. So you have a few, um, a few instances of these women working, but Garthwaite is outstanding because she's the only woman silk designer whose uh, designs survive mm. that we know of. Yeah, and, and so did he, this weaver, uh, buy a lot of her designs, or is this a one-off? What do we No, know? he bought a lot of them. Yeah. Um, they lived about two blocks apart from each other yeah. in the neighborhood. There you go. Um, they both went to Christchurch Spitalfields. Oh, well. So they obviously had a lot of overlapping connections, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is typical of Spitalfields, which was a very tight-knit community. To what extent were you able to create any network between them? I mean, obviously there's a network where they buy, they're, they're working with each other, but is there... Yeah, a couple of family interesting family and godchildren, and you know. There's there's stuff. not that type of family network. Yeah. Um, although I did rely heavily on the kind of theoretical uh, underpinnings of uh, social network theory and mm-hmm. network, all mm-hmm. the great network studies that are being used yeah. to think about how I was approaching these networks. And, well, if, if you did that well, David Hancock would really appreciate that. Because <laughs> yes, if someone, exactly. You ever heard someone be passionate about network theory? It yes, is, it is he. Yes, yes, that's very true. Citizens yeah. of the World, one of the great examples of that, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I couldn't really, uh, I couldn't get at a network beyond their business and religious network. Right, yeah, well, that's pretty Which, pretty which are both thick. Pretty, yeah. pretty thick. But yeah. there are a number of silks that survive um, from Scandinavia to, you know, the, what's now the United States of America that are Garthwaite designs and woven by the shop of Simon Julens. What would Garthwaite have worn on a daily basis? That is a fascinating question that I actually have thought of. Um, <laughs> well, so is, she, is, she, is she a designer? Like we think of like these outrageous designers, like Coco Chanel or something. <laughs> I mean, just, just like this flamboyant person walks around with a cape on or something. Or, or, or is she just, you know, I don't know. What, what is she? Well, mm. we know that she was, uh, this is one of the reasons she's unusual. She was uh-huh. the daughter of a Lincolnshire clergyman. Is there a portrait of her? There's not a portrait oh. of her. I wish there were, but that, not that I know of. Yeah. Um, She's the daughter of a Lincolnshire clergyman who went to Cambridge and had connections to the English nobility. She had two brothers-in-law who were Royal Society of London members. Mm. In other words, this is not some artisanal family. This is a well-connected family. Mm. And so she, uh, she grew up undeniably educated. Um, she and her sister, her widowed sister, with whom she moved to Spitalfields when they were both in their 40s, in the 1720s. Um, so a well-connected, wealthy family, but then she needs a trade. She needs to make money. So is there some kind of tragedy? Is there lack no, of they, money for the daughter? They actually or? both inherited money yeah. from their father. Um, mm. And her widowed sister had property in York. They could have stayed in York and lived there. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So I actually think some of it is this sort of drive to create, right? This right. sort of... Yeah, I mean, this know. is clearly an artist uh, to put that together. So that's sort of, I must... Yeah, I think, must express myself. I think that's a large part of it. Yeah. Um, 
And she does never marry, so she does have to, if she wants to supplement the income she inherited from her father, she would have to. She never marries, which gives her a certain freedom to do this sort of work. Um, Would this have been considered respectable work, or would she have been sort of like, she's in trade, or what is is she doing? It is trade, but it's... She's like the black sheep of the family. (laughs) She's this crazy designer. It is trade, but it's skilled trade, and so it's it's not seen as uh, necessarily beneath, Mm -hmm. you know, Beneath the genteel station. To do we do know it, if she did really any unusual. painting on her own? Or do you, I don't. Well, so you, these were done with watercolors, mm-hmm. right? So she did watercolor, and that's all we have. We don't have like watercolors of a churchyard somewhere, or watercolors of a. No, uh, the only thing we have is um, is a landscape made of cutwork paper that mm-hmm. she did when she was seventeen okay. um, in Lincolnshire. That shows uh, that she already has this this designer's eye mm-hmm. and this keen fascination with botanical species. It has, mm-hmm. you know at least 14 different species of trees, including mm. a palm tree. Um, and interestingly, it shows a lot of laborers at work shaping the environment, yeah. shaping the landscape. Right. So uh, final question on her. Does she set the trends or does she reflect the demand? Uh, she does both. But I, by, by the time she hits her stride in the 1740s, I think she's setting the trends. Really? Because there are a couple of things she does that are noteworthy. Hmm. One is that she's one of the English designers who um, who adopts um, a French designer's technique called point rentré, mm-hmm. which is where you do three-dimensional shading, you know, the way you sort of give shadow effects in a drawing, yeah. um, but lay it out on the design so that weavers will weave the three-dimensional shading. And the other thing that she really um, leads the charge in, as far as we can tell from surviving designs, is that she also, again, um, in this case, sort of flips what the French are doing and uh, designs very naturalistic botanical floral patterns on a cream background rather than on a, a darker colored background mm. as, as French designs were tending to do. Interesting. So it's a sort of English naturalism that's linked to exactly what's happening in, in English design and landscape history at the time. So this would have been seen as not French? Yes, it mm. would have been distinct mm. from the French. So she's more like Elvis than Pat Boone. <laughs> Most definitely. Well, that's cool. Hence, okay. and, and there's your cape reference, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she would have gotten there eventually. Get to the, everybody gets to the cape eventually. <laughs> All right, so let's move to America. And you talk, we talked a little bit about um, the colonial merchant already and Anne Shippen Willing. Yes. She's a famous colonial woman. I mean, there's the ones who are known. And, right. You know, she's one of the ones that people have heard of. Yeah, she's the mother of Thomas Willing, who is the, you know, so-called financier of the American Revolution with Robert Morris, Mm -hmm. who was actually Anne Shippen Willing's husband's apprentice to start out. So in Elizabeth Willing Powell is Thomas Willing's daughter? Elizabeth Willing Powell is Anne Shippen Willing's daughter. So so she's she's the mother of, you know, of the... uh, the woman that um, okay. that De Chastelux called one of the most educated in America, right? Yes, yeah, and one that we know that George Washington liked very much. Yes, and they had a good friendship and wrote yes, quite and a lot together. She wrote him a persuasive letter. About she wrote him a great letter, convincing yes. him to do the second term, <laughs> stop being such an idiot, George, kind yes. of thing. And uh, yeah, a letter which is owned by Mount Vernon. By yes, the way. so that's her daughter. Yeah, so she's she's extraordinary. We love her. So, um, uh, what do we know about her? Well, again, she leaves very little documentation in Described the Described by her space. father as full fat. <laughs> yes, when she was a baby. Which is good. You want to be fat as a baby. Yeah, she's obviously very healthy, and it's, uh, yeah. it's not unusual necessarily to have as many children as she did at the time, but it is unusual for 10 of the 11 to grow to adulthood. Mm. So. A robust 
a robust and, and healthy woman. Mm -hmm. And of course, at the time, being full fat would have been seen as aesthetically pleasing as well. Was she happily married? She seems to have been. Um, she don't. We don't have any letters from her. We don't have many letters from her, but we do have we do have letters from her husband, and we have we have letters from her children that describe what sounds like a very happy family life. Um, and her husband Charles um, died in 1754 when she was only uh, 42, I think, mm. uh, or 44. And she she never married again, which might have been for financial reasons because you know if you're a widow you can retain control of your property. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when he died, she was left with children. How old was children. she? I'm sorry. When did you say he she died? was in her early forties? Okay. Yeah. So and she, she was yeah. she could have remarried, mm -hmm. um, and she was left with ten children between the ages of toddler and early twenties. Right. Oof. So a lot of a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But she had people to help her. Yeah. That was well, she certainly did. And um, class is a big part of this story. Yes. Um, why? How? One of the things I wanted to show is that um, when we talk about objects being part of a so-called consumer revolution and being colonial Americans yeah, embracing yeah. British projects like products this. as a yes. as a sort of you know exemplar of their emulative em emulative refinement and their drive to consume to look like British people yeah that's obviously part of the story and it's an important one and sounds like you're about to say but I'm about to say a big but yeah. um, <laughs> I think the the half that hasn't been told to that yeah. is because if you only look at the consumption of objects and the display of objects rather than the productive labor behind producing them, mm -hmm. whether it's the productive labor of someone weaving a piece of cloth, the productive labor of a silkworm, or the productive labor of a woman um, you know, using clothing as a way to perform her matriarch mm -hmm. matriarchal role in society, right? Um, that you inevitably get to labor histories that are not tidy, that are not emulative, that mm -hmm. are, have nothing to do with refinement. Um, and in the case of some of these textiles, for example, one of the things that I trace throughout the book is how women, as well as men, um, both designers and wearers of silk, use it as a way to participate in these global botanical networks mm -hmm. right. that are yeah. uh, dominated by men in organizations like the Royal Society of London. Yeah. But mm -hmm. in terms of the botanical-themed dresses, it's a way for women to yeah. announce a scientific interest as well as a fashion Interesting. aesthetic. Yeah, well, that's th this is the great age of the uh, Latinization of the natural world. Yes. Uh, the discovery and classification of everything known to man, and plants is uh, yeah, all sorts of amateurs and professionals are all right. over the place engaged in that. And again, a lot of women, and that story hasn't Absolutely, been brought yeah. out as much as no. As I mean, one of, one of the famous women um, of the American side, um, Jane Goldwater, Jane yes. Golden. She's she's in the uh, book. Yes, I got to read the book. <laughs> as you can tell, my uh, I usually like to have the book read before these. Uh, these conversations, but uh, this is an enjoyable way to walk walk through it. But, uh, yeah, and Jane, Jane Colden yeah. is fascinating. She she put yeah. together a, a flora flora and fauna of, of New York. Um, Didn't she name the gardenia after Alexander Garden? I think that sounds right. Some people but I'm not think positive. that he named it after, but I think she named it after him. She might have. She she adopted Linnaean techniques, and yeah. although although in her, in her book about uh, about plants in New York, she has these really funny asides in which she takes him to task when she thinks he's wrong. Good, yes. <laughs> well, he empowered everybody to do that, I guess. But um, uh, let's get back to the main event here. So uh, Anne Shippen Willing, uh, you, no, no, what were we, we were talking about the consumer revolution, uh, partly of the literature and the way that mm -hmm. it talks about uh, provincials in this case and how they are reflecting and emulating uh, status and, and style. Is, is um, I mean, what else don't you like about that literature? Is there more to it than I think there is? Uh, well, there I mean, what do you feel like? Uh, you know, 
it's a little bit of a um, it's a little bit of a ne too neat of a thesis in the way that it empowers and, and defines identities and all this stuff. And yeah, and I mean, it's and the literature is is wonderful in its own way. You know, I mean, you know how history works, right? We mm -hmm. we build on foundations and we push back against things, and that's how you get to new interpretations. So, yeah, you know, could I get to where I am without that literature? Probably not. So, you know, I I fully You'd appreciate what it's generous. doing. But, I like this. But yes. at the same time, um, I think one of the one of the problems with some of that literature is that it it accepted what used to be a sort of old model of Atlantic world history in which there was the center periphery model mm -hmm. or the, the uh, you know, the metropole yeah. um, periphery yeah. idea. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that, that most everything, whether it be ideology, fashion, or, you know, knowledge yeah. about science was coming out of the, the metropole in Europe and right. trickling out around the Atlantic world, right? Um, and I think that people in all sorts of fields, whether it's political, religious, economic, um, material culture, histories have have upset that notion, yeah, push right? back about that. I mean, the Atlantic world is, a, in some ways, a rejection of that yes, dichotomy. It is, and but I do think that, that ascribing... Agency is everywhere. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I do think that ascribing um, colonial uh, use of, of objects to this model of emulative consumption yeah. sort of fits within that old rubric of the core to periphery. And mm -hmm. um, in the even in the case of the silk, for example, so when Anna Maria Garthwaite is designing these botanically accurate... Um, silks, you know, she she designs a, a lot of designs that have things like aloes and spotted lilies that mm. are native mm. to Africa yeah. and to North America. Yeah, and, Right, so even though she's mimicking the English landscape, the English landscape, by the time she's mimicking it, looks a lot more like North America and Africa than it does, you know, in England before England was enmeshed in this global botanical trade. Right, yeah. Yeah, she can go places and look at these plants. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, there, one of the things I've always been frustrated with with the consumer revolution work is a little bit of, uh, well, and it's related to the anglicization model. Right, thesis, um, which, I, which I'm know. also questioning. Well, because, <laughs> well, yeah, because, I mean, one of the strong things you see emerging is, I mean, maybe it's something like creolization, where, you know, where you're getting a, an elite that has their own style and their own identities yes. that are being created in these, you know, in Virginia and New England and Philadelphia, mm -hmm. you know, and it's so it's not this simple sort of I'm becoming more English or striving to be English. It's rather quite different. It's you know we're we're becoming something di distinct. I mean, and that is going to emerge with um, you know with a lot of fervor in the late 18th century. Right. And so I wonder about that. I mean, is there a Philadelphia style that she's a part of? Yeah, um, and, and that, you, that you think or can see most definitely, and and actually even beyond Philadelphia, one of the things that's interesting about Things like because they could be buying a lot of different types of stuff they from could. Europe or England. I mean, Britain's got a rich culture, and they're not consuming all of it. They're consuming parts of it. They're consuming parts of it, and they're very specific about what they want. Yeah. Um, in fact, the color of the damask she's wearing is this color that they called cloth, which we would see as taupe or khaki. Yeah. And well, that cloth was is a dumb name for the color <laughs> of a cloth. <laughs> it, it it's <laughs> not very descriptive, is yeah. it? Yeah. Well, it's like khaki, I guess. It's sort of like yeah, a, exactly. a name of a cloth. Is yeah, it's, a, a it's color. the neutral. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in this case, you know, uh, Colonial America is the second most important economic market for Spitalfield silk outside of London. Mm. Londoners are not asking for cloth-colored fabric to mm. the extent that colonists mm. are. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, so I there is that distinctiveness. There's distinctiveness. When you see it, so we go back to the Oceans of Wine book. Now, in the case, you know, Americans are drinking Madeira, not Canary, because right. there's all these duties and this special. I mean, this, you can get it much cheaper in North America than you can in other places. 
Um, so on the one hand, it's emulative and part of a wine-consuming culture. On the other hand, it's a completely different product. And right. It creates and different relationships, and the networks and relationships are different. So, yeah, it's complicated, I think. Yeah, most definitely. And to parallel the Mad what's going on with Madeira, um, with what Americans are buying in terms of cloth, they're actually, by, by mandate, after the Calico crises in the 1720s. Oh, I like this. The Calico crisis. The Calico crisis. What, what is uh, this? I mean, I know about the, you know, about the... Uh, you know, the big bubble, the bubble and, and all that. Well, and there's the tulip uh, bubble, and then there's the big uh, South Sea bubble. And yeah, Is that related to the Calico the South, crisis? South Sea bubble and, and, this, and the second Calico crisis. There's more than one. <laughs> <laughs> um, do do yeah. fairly uh, parallel one another That sounds in like time. a coffee table book, the Calico it does. crisis. <laughs> yes, the Calico crisis. <laughs> but, you know, a, a very real thing in which um, weavers um, were, in which weavers took to the street, um, would mm. strip women naked and at times even throw acid on them because they were very upset with the craze that Daniel Defoe said was like a plague that swept through England to wear calico and chintz ah. that came from uh, from India and, and Asia. I see, okay. And so the, right. the, the English yeah, so weavers... It's harming their livelihood, absolutely. It's harming their livelihood, yeah. and they have a very long tradition, which I explore in the book, of taking to the streets in very effective ways mm. um, in terms of political protest, and yeah. in often violent ways. They do it in the 17-teens um, and 20s. They do it again in the 1760s. There's a sort of parallel mm. um, protest of the streets uh, during the Stamp Act crisis that's yeah, going isn't on. Isn't John Wilkes associated with this, or am I, am I not getting that right? Maybe not. They, the Weavers face, fully so. embraced the Wilkes and Liberty cry. Yeah, and they okay. I thought he was, Wilkes was like a darling of the Weavers for some reason. Oh, the, yeah, they did. They love him. There's a, um, okay. There are accounts of, of Weavers okay. using Wilkes and Liberty as a rallying cry okay. in their okay. 1760s protests. Yeah. Well, that I mean, it speaks to protests around... Um, well, we, we see it, of course, in the tea, the destruction of the tea and this sort of... Absolutely. When you get into the economics and the, and the, and the labor sort of um, radicalism or, mm -hmm. or the labor dynamism, solidarities that are built around these uh, you know, production and consumption, it's, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, this is great. We should know about the Calico crisis. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the Calico crisis, this, this gets to your Anglicization point, uh, mm. actually mandated that uh, the c sort of compromise was that um, Parliament mandated that uh, organizations like the EIC, the East India Company, would no longer bring India-made right. or Asian-made chintz and calico into England itself o if, unless they were re-exporting it to the colonies. Interesting, yeah. So the colonies actually ended up consuming a much more Asian-laden mm. uh, market with textiles than, okay. than their counterparts did in England yeah. in interesting ways. Yeah, so there, there you go. That's, the, again, sort of, uh, it, there's a more complicated tale to be told about consumption. Uh, all right, well, let's get to the fourth of your, um, quad, your quatrain. Your, yes. You know, your, quad, your quartet. Yeah, that's what we're going for. Uh, who is the painter? Yes. Robert Feek. Robert Feek. You mentioned a little bit that Feek is known as uh, one of the earliest known colonial-born, American-born, North right. American-born. What, what do we know about Robert Feek? Well, he's, he's another mystery wrapped inside of an enigma mm. in many ways. Um, as, yeah. as you'll see, if you look at his birth and, and death dates, they both have a little C in front of them, which tells you that we don't even have those records, right? Yeah. We don't even have a, a concrete birth and, and, uh, and death date. Um, what we do know about him that is sort of fascinating is uh, mm. he was born in, in Oyster Bay, Long Island, okay, sure. to a family that was already a few generations in uh, a Robert Feek of an earlier name, and of course all these people have the same name as people in the 18th century want to do, confusingly, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually came over uh, with Winthrop to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. and Arbella. 
Yes, and they had they had family connections. Um, ended up this Robert Feek ended up marrying John Winthrop's uh, widowed daughter-in-law, and so there is a, a direct connection. So there. John Winthrop's son, the one who drowned, married somebody. The one who drowned in Barbados. The one who drowned, yeah. In the Caribbean, drowned on a sea voyage. Um, who was he married to? What was her name? Do we know? Her name, if I'm remembering correctly, was Elizabeth. That's just a guess. I mean, but you know, you're, you're going <laughs> to pick from the five names that women were named. It was either Elizabeth, Ann, Sarah, <laughs> yeah, or Mahatabel. Yeah, Maybe Hannah slips yeah. in there. Okay, good. So, um, uh, uh, and, uh, so she marries a Robert Feek who came over on the Arabella. Yes. So, in other words, okay. they're originally Puritans. Yeah, and they're then clearly connected with this. Connected with group. the High and Mighty. Yeah. Um, but for a variety of personal scandals, this Robert Feek um, sort of went mad. And the uh, mad Robert Feek. The mad Robert Feek. The, uh, the mad Feek. Good, they, they, okay. The family ends up um, sort of moving gradually through a series of moves away from Puritan Massachusetts, both literally and figuratively. They end up on um, Long Island mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, become both Quakers and Baptists. And so they are, in an interesting way, paralleling that Philadelphia story of Quakers moving into uh, more mainstream Anglican, Pro- uh, Presbyterian, yeah. Protestant sects. But in this case, they're moving from this sort of Puritan oligarchy into um, this more kind of religious dissenter. Yeah, that's a big mode. move. I mean, it's a big move. Those people got hung in Massachusetts exactly. in, the, in the 17th century. Exactly, and uh, and Robert Feek's father was uh, was a Baptist minister, in wow. fact. Wow, early one. Okay, An so early one. why is he? How does he trained as a painter? Where does he learn how to paint? That is one of these things that's completely mysterious. Yeah. Um, so Robert Feek, we know he started painting when he lived on Oyster Bay. Um, like his father, he had a career as a surveyor, yeah. which actually would have been useful for a painter because it teaches you uh, mathematical ways of approaching a landscape. Um, there are lots of landscapes in Feek's paintings mm. and local landscapes um, like Block Island in Newport. Is landscape New unusual store. to see that in paintings in the early 18th century? It is because the way most art historians have read American portraiture in particular, as well as landscapes, um, is that American artists were essentially just copying British mezzotint prints. But what I found with Robert Feek is that in many cases, um, he's using using specific local colonial um, references. Um, He paints a a Boston merchant, Charles Apthorpe, for example, Mm -hmm. um, standing in front of one of the islands that he owns in Boston Harbor. Okay, yeah, nice. So, it, yeah. you know, very uh, again, it's sort of anti-Anglicization, right? This, this yeah. idea they're celebrating the it's local a place. here. It's a specific place yeah. that people are of. Exactly. And that's being celebrated. So there's, there's an apoc- probably apocryphal but wonderful story um, that tells you how mysterious Robert Feek is, that he, uh, as, as a young man, he was captured on the high seas during the War of Jenkins' ear, of brought to Spain, <laughs> and there he, yeah. was, he, he sort of charmed a widow into giving him painting supplies, and he learned to paint his way out of prison by selling these portraits. Yeah, well, that's funny. It that's is good. funny. But the nice thing about that story is that he yeah. was actually a mariner, yeah. and when his daughters, who were Quaker, this is a very Newport story, lots of religious yeah. diversity here. Right. Um, after their father had mysteriously died, they had a double marriage ceremony, and they recorded him not as Robert Feek Limner, but as Robert Feek Mariner. Interesting. So he's a really good example of how um, people in the Atlantic world could have these sort of dual lives centered around the sea and another occupation. Yeah, well, it's too bad he didn't go with the British trip to Cartagena and paint Lawrence there. Exactly. I mean, that's where <laughs> Lawrence paintings of. Who is this artist unknown portrait of Mrs. Edward Ship in the second that has the same body as this? Yeah, that's a, that's a copycat portrait yeah. of uh, Anne Ship and Willing's sister-in-law, and um, not done mm. by Robert Feek. Right. I think it's done by John Hesalius, although that's not provable. 
Um, and it is, as you can see, essentially the same portrait. She's yeah. wearing the same dress. What's mm -hmm. interesting is she's actually physically wearing the same dress. The artist didn't copy it, which you can tell by the fact that the yeah. folds are different. The, same. Oh, the folds are different? The way that the cloth is draping is different. So mm -hmm. the artist painted it from life, not from a mm -hmm. copycat of the portrait. Mm -hmm. And the sort of context for that is the that... the fan, too. The yes, very similar. Same pose. That uh, the, the Shippens were involved in, a, in an unwitting... Um, that quickly blew over, but for a time, scandal related to bigamy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read this portrait as, you know, in, in Mary Shippen's world, it was much more important to send viewers the reminder that you were part of these two powerful colonial, politically powerful families yeah. than to try to look like an English gentleman. Yeah, well, there you go. It, again, speaks to what we were talking about with the lack of Anglicization in the model. Yes. So Feek, uh, we don't know anything about him. He dies at some point. What's his most famous painting? Is this is this one it? Of, no, one of his most famous is uh, is a is of Samuel Waldo, and it's yeah. related to the the Battle of Louisburg, which is uh, so it's celebrating the American and but particularly American colonial in tandem with the British forces um, defeat of the French at Louisburg. Yeah, it was a huge deal. It was a huge deal. He had a huge painting of him. Um, John Adams famously writes about that. This is, you know, he was nine years old or something. It was like the greatest day in the yes, history of the world. Yes, exactly. Um, and he remembers the celebrations and the enthusiasm. Yeah, so this is another yeah. example of, you know, celebrating an American colonist for what is seen as a very local colonial yeah. victory. Yeah, and, and the is there any religious iconography in that painting? There is not. It's it's very military. It, um, oh. it shows it shows Louisburg. He's holding, I think, a spyglass, and he's wearing. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a very military. It's got military symbolism. So there. yeah, so that's Shirley, right? No, Waldo. Yeah. Oh, said Waldo. Okay. Wow. So I'm gonna have to take a look. at That's interesting. That's fascinating. Okay. Um, so what uh, what's the biggest mystery that you are angry that you couldn't figure out? in this book filled with mystery. Filled with mystery. Uh, well, mystery and lots of answers. I mean, it's an extraordinary piece of scholarship. Well, thank you. That's that's yeah. very kind of you to say so. Yeah. Um, well, I haven't read it fully yet, but <laughs> I mean, just talking We'll see if it holds up to the end, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, well, this isn't at all what I thought, you know. Yeah, so no no spoilers in this podcast. Yeah. No, I, I do think that, um, I, I think it's fascinating to, to think about all the, you know, I still managed to get what? including footnotes, 400 pages of history a, yeah. on this, right? So it's it's not as though there weren't any stories to tell. But it is it is an amazing reminder to me of how, despite how much we know about history, there's still so much that's untellable. Yeah. Um, and that we rely so heavily on the documentation that comes to light and the sources that are out there. And Well, and the creativity of the masters who are trying to interpret the past. Well, thank I you. Mean, history is an interpretation, ultimately, not a recitation. Right, a very a very nice succinct way to put it. And no, um, let's get that on tape. <laughs> yeah, that's that's excellent. How how long have we been going? I don't know. This has been oh, it's we're long, but it's extremely enjoyable, and I really appreciate you spending time talking about this work. Uh, what does it all mean in the end? You got these, you know, they're connected by these networks. Uh, it helps us see maybe a little bit about what the lived. Well, the different vantage points on what the lived experience of the British Empire and the right. 18th century world was for these people recovers, I think, some lives and, and helps us understand what's ordinary and what's exceptional mm -hmm. in an interesting way. It's a brilliant piece of cultural history, uh, a la Robert Darton, perhaps. Yes. The he, Great Cat Massacre. He, that, that is one of my all-time inspirations, yeah. too. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but then what, so what do we make of it in the end? Well, I mean, you've, you've identified some of the historical takeaways, right, is yeah. that it resuscitates these people who otherwise have been lost to our telling of the past. Yeah. 
and in particular things like the history of women's labor and how complicit women are in shaping and forming this Atlantic world mm -hmm. in the 18th century yeah. in ways that I think we haven't necessarily given due credit. Um, and also histori historiographically speaking, troubling the, I think, all too accepted easy notion of emulative refinement yes. as the driving mm -hmm. force mm -hmm. behind the so-called consumer revolution. Yeah. Um, I guess another methodological takeaway that I would want people to mm. have from the book is uh, that when Yale described it, they said that um, one of the things they said was that it was contributing to our ongoing conversation about how to write history. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of my That's favorite things anyone... Uh, compliment for a first book. It is, and it was one of my favorite things that anyone said about it um, yeah. because that was part of what I'm trying to do. It could be here. an insult, though. It could be like, <laughs> could like be. reading David Hancock's cute in the other way. It's like, no one's written a book like this. Because you shouldn't. Because you shouldn't, exactly. <laughs> this is not how we do it. It contributes in, in really horrifying <laughs> ways to our dialogue. Contributes to the conversation. I like yes. that because, the, yeah, the, the part of that dialogue must be don't write it like this. Right, write it exactly. Like that. No, but in all seriousness, but I no. mean, it's a great, uh, great appreciation of the work. So. And so it was, you know, yeah. this sort of, um, yeah. this idea of how does history change if we, if we, uh, if we approach what maybe wouldn't be a history we would tell because it doesn't have a lot of sources. You know, I mean, yeah. oftentimes as historians, I think people gravitate towards projects because there's this great yeah. cache there's of letters, yeah. right, exactly. that no one has yeah. talked about yet. And those are wonderful and necessary and yeah. vital projects. But in this case, I think it's methodologically speaking, not just talking about material culture, but talking about what types of history do we tell if we try to tell histories that aren't so obvious. Yeah. You know, what does that do to our understanding of the past? Well, we, some of the great works of our generation have been works of recovery of stories that people used to not want to even kind of try to approach. You think of, you know, Annette Gordon-Reed's, uh, you know, taking apart the Hemming story in, in just, you know, brilliant sort of way of what you can guess about and what you can't guess about and how do you do that in a way that isn't ham-fisted and you know, and, and does violence to, you know, the scholarly side of the profession, which is that things have to have evidence. You can't just say what you wish, you know, yes. to say. Um, so, you know, so that's, um, so it fits within that genre, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And believe me, I had a lot of speculative ideas that I did not put down in print. Well, if you want to see those, go back to the dissertation, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which exactly. she said was awful, but she didn't say why. Hide so it. We're Don't gonna, read that. <laughs> Well, that's wonderful. Well, well good to, it's good to know that the, at least there was learning from failure at some point in what is a remarkable uh, study. Congratulations. Well, and uh, tonight we're going to have a great program at Mount Vernon with uh, Zara and um, uh, Flora Frazier uh, yes. talking about women as consumers in the 18th century Atlantic, uh, led by Susan Scholler, and we'll have a recording of that for people who are interested to find on our webpage. So. Tune in. Uh, with, uh, what should be a great conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And thank you for this conversation, which has also yeah. been great. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, so, and I really look forward to getting into the book deeply. And, uh, and you know, it's always, uh, we always have plenty of things on our list of things to read. Yes, but too it's much. All, but it is, it is nice to be excited about one of them, too. Well, so, thank you. I really appreciate uh, that. Yeah, well, uh, anyway, thank you for being here. And let's sign off. And uh, uh, bon chance. Excellent. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.